Let's open the Lord's Word to Psalm 14 as we continue in our study of the Psalter. Today, as we come into Psalm 14, we find ourselves encountering what we might term a Davidic upswing. That is to say that his personal confidence has been bolstered in recent times, as it were. We ended the 13th Psalm with a recognition of the twin pillars of the mercy and the goodness of God. And how it is that that ultimately is the hope not only of a beleaguered and a fatigued and a distressed and even sometimes doubting king of Israel, but also for you and me and for any who would put their trust in the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. What David does today in This psalm is to continue to feature similarities of theme from the preceding psalms. He's dealing with the wickedness of men, their contribution to the prominence of evil in the world, and the impact that that has. But he points us ultimately to the ultimate blessedness that those who trust God have. Remember, after all, that's what we began the Psalter with. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, upon which he meditates day and night. That sets the stage for the entire ancient hymn book that Israel employed. What is ultimate contentment? What is ultimate blessedness? We continue to work in self-contained fashion in each of these psalms toward that glorious end. And what he does here is to, to widen his lens a bit in this 14th psalm and to remind us both of the condition of natural man and the unconditional love of God who delivers natural man from condemnation to salvation. And in so doing, giving him permanent hope in this world and in the world to come. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 7. For the director of music of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, all have turned aside, they have together become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn, those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is God's word. May he write its truths irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's again look to him in prayer. Lord, we, we come before you and we, we acknowledge that in our natural state, the things that we have just read in the beginning of this psalm are true of us. That apart from you and your graciousness, we, we have no hope. And yet you are so kind as to show us who we really are. 
that we may see our need for you in all that you really are. So we ask that you would have your way with us this day, that you would, if necessary in this place, justify those who perhaps may not know you, sanctify those who do, encourage those who are distressed, and invigorate and equip all of us for the journey that you have placed us on in this life, that we may honor and glorify you. We thank you that indeed you are our help. You have been and you will be, and we praise you. And we ask now as we look into your word that you would stretch us, convict us, comfort us, all for the sake of the one who makes reconciliation with you possible, even Jesus, we do pray. Amen. A good friend of mine several years ago went to Russia on a missions trip, and on the way over there, he had a weekend layover in London. And on the Sunday morning, he went down to the desk and asked the hotel concierge, is there a church nearby where I can worship? He said, yes, as a matter of fact, you're only about two blocks here from St. Paul's Cathedral. So John went down there, and as Providence would have it, Dr. John Stott was preaching there that morning. This was in the summer of 1993, I believe. And Dr. Stott preached a sermon defending the veracity and the reliability of Scripture. This was at a time where there was still some talk about inerrancy and so on. And he got up to preach the sermon. And according to my friend, before he began to preach, he said, I hope you will permit me not to read my text this morning because my text is the whole Bible. Since I last saw you, I had the privilege of worshiping in a church where the pastor preached a sermon on the entire book of Philippians. And that was really interesting. You think, oh, this is too much to read. I mean, this sort of violates worship and homiletical norms. Don't they tell us not to read too much, etc.? I have to say, sitting in the pew for the eight or ten minutes or so it took to read those four chapters of Philippians were so refreshing to my soul. And it occurred to me that that's the way the the recipients of those letters originally heard them. They didn't chop them up verse by verse like we modern expositional preachers do. They, They read the whole thing. And to be hit with the whole of Philippians at one time was such a blessing. This man was making specific points out of the whole, as was Dr. Stott. There is a sense in which King David employs a similar tactic in Psalm 14, but he moves in the other direction. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's creating, as it were, he's by inspiration writing this song to deal with a very large topic. Two, actually, two very specific, important, and necessary realities. That is the ultimate, utter depravity of man when left to his own devices. And secondly, the delivering power of God, presenting God as the lone source of salvation from that predicament, that condition of depravity. Here in Psalm 14, we have the wise God's word to the foolish creature. We are more depraved than we ever thought we were, and he is of greater delivering power and sanctifying power and the power to conform to his son than we could ever realize also. We talk about words to the wise. Praise God that here he has for us some words to fools so that we might salvifically be the wiser. Now, there are three 
main emphases that I want to stress from Psalm 14. One of the things as you begin to study this psalm, you'll notice as you move ahead, and you no doubt recall this from your studies, that Psalm 53 is virtually a verbatim repeat of Psalm 14. And that ought to clue us into the importance of being reminded of our need of God and how kind He is in continuing in different ways throughout the Scriptures to revisit the matter of our sinfulness, our utter foolishness before Him, our commitment to ourselves, and how it is that He alone can deliver and therefore deserves alone for Himself the glory for that, with the exception of verse 5. Psalm 53 is identical to Psalm 14. Some of the words are a little bit different. The construction there is altered a bit, but it's generally the same. I like that repeat textually because it shows me my problem and it shows me the great solution. Some of you, if you have your favorite television shows, you have episodes that you prefer and you like to see them repeated. Well, this is what we really need to have repeated for us themes in the scriptures that remind us that we need to be called out of darkness into marvelous light lest we perish and we have no hope unless God does that for us and works that in us, applies to us the benefits of his great redemption that he has accomplished ultimately in the greater David. And as difficult as it is, what the first three verses of Psalm 14 show us are the accurate identity of the desperate. The accurate identity of the desperate. I use that term desperate because that's where the biblical fool, at least in the context of 14, really is. He's caught in a labyrinth of desperation. The weeping prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17:9 that the heart of man is deceitful. We've seen plenty of that already in the Psalms thus far. And above all else, desperately wicked, or in the Hebrew, meaning something close to appearing to be beyond cure. You look at man and you really begin to grasp who he is. You think, wow, there's this, this one is really in trouble. And, and your impression is he's, he's beyond the pale. We have to go that deeply. We have to cut into the marrow of our own condition that deeply to understand what our need is and to appreciate what God has really done. And boy, does he use sobering language here in the identification the authentic, accurate identification of the desperate. He calls man a fool. Now, there are many words that we can translate fool that mean different things in both Testaments. We have words that mean lacking wisdom, dim-witted, maniac, a madman. This is the term nabal, and it literally refers to moral unacceptability. And that's important because in order to get right to the heart of the matter, to, as the Roman philosophers used to say with their Latin phrase, rem acu tetigit, to prick the thing with a needle, to get right into the core of the problem, we have to have that term that conveys unacceptability morally before God. Who you are in your constitution won't do before your Creator. 
You cannot be accepted in the condition that you are in. Nabal. We might understand this better as we move ahead to Matthew chapter 5. You'll remember there where Jesus is dealing with the matter of murder. He says to those who are listening to that great sermon in Matthew 5.22, Do not call your brother Raka. And that's an Aramaic word that means foolish or stupid. Or if you do so, as Jesus is dealing with the solemnity and the importance of such matters, uh, he tells them that they are subject to the discipline of the Sanhedrin. Then he goes on to say, and to contrast this with calling one's brother a fool, if they do that, or they are not to do that, lest they be, as he says, subject to the fires of hell. Now, that word we use for fool there in the Greek is akin to nabal, moral unacceptability. What Jesus is saying is, don't make light of what I have come to earth to do. If you look at your brother and you call him morally unacceptable, then you have presented a very offensive affrontery to me and my work. If you enjoy salvation by grace through faith in me, Jesus would say, And you have my righteousness. Don't you dare look upon someone else who enjoys the same salvation and call them morally unacceptable. That aids us, you see, in understanding what David is driving at here. A fool is one who has no hope. He's beyond the pale unless God does something on his behalf. A fool, a morally acceptable one, says in his heart... There is no God. Now, this is important, the matter of the heart. Notice he doesn't say the mind, the the seed of man's being. In other words, this is not a, a profession that comes after there's been some extensive effort to see and to understand the supreme creator of the universe, and you've decided that because of lack of scientific evidence, oh, I don't think I'll believe. This is not what Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins would say as they sit around in their offices and contemplate all the things they do. No, this is in the heart. It's almost as if he's saying, without thought, reflexively, what natural man does is declare deepest within his being, there is no God, or literally in the Hebrew, no God. It's not an intellectual declaration. It's a heart declaration. The one who is morally unacceptable is so because the cry in his heart is, No God! This is the everyman. This is what Adam was doing in the garden. When he ate that fruit, he was declaring, No God! It's not intellectual. It's not, oh, I'd just be persuaded if I had more compelling arguments. No, this is from the seat of your existence an expression of what you want, if left to your own devices. And what you want is, and what I want is, no God. An aversion to the God in order to be your own God. If you've never heard the 1984 debate between Dr. Greg Bonson and Dr. Gordon Stein, the president of the American Atheist Association, you really should. It's a great debate. We listened to it in apologetics class at seminary, and I remember Dr. Duncan, Ligon Duncan, before he rolled the tape, 
he said, this is going to be good. This is like listening to your favorite college football team win the national championship 62 to nothing. And, and it really was a good debate. But what was interesting in that debate and what stuck with me all of these years is along about half to three-quarters of the way when Dr. Bonson says to Dr. Stein, Dr. Stein, your problem is not that you don't believe a God exists. Your problem is that you know He is there and you hate Him. That's Psalm 14.1. The fool says... The one without God exclaims from his heart, No God. Now, David does something interesting in verse 1b and verses 2 and 3. He, he uses in context language descriptive of those who are causing his distress at this point in his life. But he does so to, as it were, not give an out to the one who might not carry a sign in the street or go into the world with raving blasphemies in their declaration for no God, but simply quietly, or perhaps even tacitly or passively make that declaration. That's another important reason for us having the word heart there. If he says it in his mind, it's going to come out through his mouth. But inevitably, if he says it in his heart, he might say that expressively, but he doesn't have to necessarily. He can do it in the quiet of his own being, in the aloneness of his own home, or of his own existence, or hers. What about, you might ask, those who aren't blatantly opposing God or declaring no God from their hearts? What about those who seem, as we might say, less foolish or foolish to a lesser degree? Could it be that there is one who is not opposed to God and we can conclude that by observing that somehow he or she is coming toward God? But no, the text doesn't allow for that. He's looked at these corrupt ones whose deeds are vile He looks down, verse 2, from heaven on the sons of men, that's all of men, to see if there are any who understand. Uh, This language means that God is seeing, and we've encountered this before, have we not, in in Psalm 11, this matter of the divine vision. It's as if God is looking out, God is is peering, God to see. The word in the Hebrew means to squint. It's as if you're you're trying to see something on a board that's far away and you can't quite make out the letters, or perhaps back in the day when people traveled by horse-drawn carriage, if you could stand out on the hill and you looked for your guests to come over the horizon and you were squinting, you you were almost straining to see them. That's the idea here. This God who man opposes, He's straining to see if there's anyone doing good, having understanding, and trying to come toward Him, and there's not. So therefore, you can be a blatant crier, no God. Or you can be more of the quiet type, no God. But you're still on the hook. No one understands. No one does good. Not even one. All have turned aside. That is, the whole of humanity 
is averse to God. Now, we, we know these words. We're familiar with these words. It's interesting that we often cite them more out of Paul's quotation of them in, in Romans chapter 3. You remember when you were a new believer and, and you realized, wow, I, I don't do anything good. I, I'm not seeking God. He sought me. Well, those words are original with David. Uh, Psalm 14.2 corresponds directly with Romans 3.11. Psalm 14.3 corresponds directly with Romans 3.12. He's dealing there with the matter of both Jew and Gentile, Paul is, being under sin. One is no better than the other. They both need the salvation that Paul is writing to them about at the church in Rome. They, they need it. And so he cites these words originally in David. No one seeks God. So you see, with all due respect to modern church growth pundits, there really is no such thing as a seeker. I didn't seek God. He sought me. He wasn't lost. I was. I am the found one. This is what we have to understand to appreciate, much less embrace the gospel that Scripture brings to us. These words show how foolish we are. They out the everyman. Those like Madeline Murray O'Hara who seethed with hatred for God... And they out your kind and gentle and seemingly sweet neighbor who somewhere in a way that no one hears but God declares no God. Now, of what benefit is this to us? Well, they're innumerable, but I would emphasize to you, I believe, that these words are here in order that those of us who by grace have been brought into the kingdom may hold before us precisely what it is from which we have been delivered, that we may never lose sight of who we really are, that what Oswald Chambers has said is true, that I am one prayerless day away from being capable of anything, that the residuality of this brand of foolishness is still lurking, and it ought to motivate us to keep going back to the cross. That's why the message of Repentance and faith cannot be surpassed by any other message. Repentance. That's why it's so important that we do that in in worship collectively, but we also need to do it privately. And we need to seek, as I pointed out to you before, to do as the Westminster Confession of Faith calls for in chapter 15, verse 5, that paragraph 5, we ought to not concern ourselves with a general repentance, but to enumerate our particular sins particularly. You count your blessings one by one. When's the last time you tried to count your sins one by one and to ask God to reveal them to you? It's a marvelously gracious thing that we can't see them as He sees them. We would be so undone we could not exist. But to ask Him to reveal to us that which we need to bring to Him and that which we need to turn from so that we may claim by faith His grace, avail ourselves 
of the blood of Calvary again and again and again, much like an explorer would come from his homeland and would go on to the virgin shores of an undiscovered island and look in the pure sand and take the flag of his nation and stick it in the sand irremovably. That's what we need to be doing every day. Repenting. Availing ourselves of the work of the greater David. Remembering the fools that we were. And working on toward heaven, claiming His grace by faith. Uh, Philip Henry was a nonconformist of the 17th century in England, and he was referred to in an article by Bishop J.C. Ryle. Bishop Ryle tells of Mr. Henry one day having been approached and baited by a young man who asked him, Mr. Henry, how long should a man go on repenting? And Henry replied, Sir, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gates of heaven. Every day I find I am a sinner and every day I need to repent. I mean to carry my repentance by God's help up to the very gates of heaven. Ryle then went on to exhort his reader in this article by saying, May this be our divinity. May it be your divinity, my divinity. May this be your theology and my theology. May repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ be Jochen and Boaz in reference to Second. 3.17, the great pillars before the temple of our religion and the cornerstones in our system of Christianity. See, an accurate identity of the desperate will drive the one who is brought from foolishness to saving wisdom to keep going back, to take repentance and faith to the gates of heaven, because without it, you're left among the category of fools and the fool of Psalm 14.1 is not a fool to be suffered so much as one who without God will suffer without end. Well, secondly, moving on, we come to the surprising favor of the deliverer. The surprising favor of the deliverer. And it's a refreshing surprise. By this I mean that we are in a sense caught off guard as we turn the corner into verse 4. We see something that if, you, if you're just beamed in on these sobering realities of the first three verses, it will surprise you. You begin to read David's continued development and his expression of God's desires coming from his heart and all of the matters in verses 4 through 7 and how it is that the foolish one is overwhelmed and is frustrating the plans of the poor and all of that. But notice in these last four verses four indications of there being a group of individuals who have been brought from foolishness unto salvation. For example, David employs the first person on the Lord's behalf in verse 4 to speak of my people. In verse 5, he speaks of a company of the righteous. In verse 6, he speaks of the people of God as poor or as deprived of material goods, nevertheless having the Lord, who is his God, as their safe tower or place of safety, their refuge. Then again, in the, in the midst of verse 7, we have an identification in the third person on God's behalf by David of his people. So you have this inclusio in verse 4 and verse 7 of the people of God. They're a righteous lot and they have safety in their God. 
So it occurs to you implicitly somewhere along the way there has been a group from among the fools brought out and changed and renamed and made the people of God from whom they had estranged themselves and having taken on a righteousness, being in possession of that, an alien one, and a people of safety, and a people whose fortunes will one day be restored. And what this does begins to show us the gracious dimensions of our salvation, that the only wise God, our Savior, has made wise unto vital union with Himself and therefore acceptable, morally acceptable, and given fellowship to some of the fools. There is a generation, if you will, or a company, as the NIV says there in verse 5b, of the righteous. This is the same kind of language that he employed back in verse 6 of Psalm 12, where he spoke of a people from which uh, the Lord would keep them safe forever. That is, the evildoers and those encroaching upon David and unsettling his soul. They were a people. That's the same kind of language that Jesus uses when he speaks in Matthew 17, 17 of a perverse and crooked generation. It's a people group. You have a people group of fools. Now you have a people group of those who are all wise in the salvific sense. That is, they have embraced by God's grace through faith His promises, and they have come into the diet, the Hebrew word for wisdom. That is, knowledge of the wisdom, the will of God unto obedience and inclination toward Him. It's the wisdom of Proverbs 1.7. It's that knowledge that Solomon identifies there as the fear of Lord of the Lord being the beginning of or the commencement of. There's a people that's been drawn out. Who are they? They're those who have been saved by the grace of God. Perhaps the 20th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up best. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of His mere good pleasure elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of an estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. One of my early mentors, Hal Farnsworth, of whom you've heard me speak, used to say, if there's a turtle on the fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. Somebody had to put him up there. As you look at the people of God in Psalm 14, they didn't get there. These fools didn't become non-fools on their own. There's an indication here of a gracious, unmerited operation of God that is inspired entirely from within His existence and nothing outside of Himself. I cited Romans 3 earlier. Paul there is quoting David. He's warning, as it were, that there is no distinction among people groups. All have a need for God. And then later on in the chapter, he too makes it clear, right there in Romans 3, how it is that some of those to whom he is writing are made gods. In verse 21 of Romans 3, he says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's the hope for the one who doesn't seek God, who does not do good, but who is thoroughly corrupt? That's it. And the one who prefigures him, King David, possessed that same hope as well. It causes you to take stock of your own heart, to remember who you were. You know the old saying, never forget where you came from? We like to say that for some reason. We're usually meaning geographically or genealogically. But how much more is it important to think that way spiritually? I read that catalog of sins in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul offers up, and I often think, whoa. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were sanctified. You were washed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what put you there. This is the surprising favor of the Deliverer. We need to couch the terms of our having been brought from foolishness in these same Godward terms. I read a story recently of a man who was converted in New England many years ago. His wife was a member of the Eagleton Square Church in Boston where Dr. William Butler was the pastor. He had forbidden her to go to prayer meetings. He was a quite difficult man. He himself one night happened upon a prayer meeting and began to be convicted of his own sins as he heard what was being said and prayed. He came home and his wife expected him to be filled with ridicule. But he wasn't. The next day, while piloting a ferry boat between Boston and Chelsea, he said his heart was heavy and he thought on Christ and returned home that evening and asked for his wife to bring the Bible out. And while she did, continually expecting only a renewal of his own blasphemies, he took the book and said, we must have family prayers. He had been transformed All his sins had been taken from him. At 3 a.m. he went to the home of the deacon and awoke, awakened the deacon. I've come to tell you that the Lord has converted my soul today. To which the deacon responded, Praise the Lord, brother. Would you say that if somebody woke you up in the middle of the night? (laughs) Praise the Lord, brother. His elated wife called Dr. Butler to go down and to see her greatly changed husband, And in the account in Elon Foster's book in which he tells this, he says he was found at most joyfulness in his new experience, overflowing with love and wondering at the grace of God which had found him after he had gone around the world committing the vilest of sins. Notice the careful language here. The Lord converted my soul yesterday. The writer says that he wondered at the grace of God which had found him, not that he had found. That's a surprise of the favor of the deliverer that just oozes out of Psalm 14, verses 4 through 7. 
may we too hold our wonder upon and our sights upon that same saving grace. And that leads me to the third and final point, the deep longing of the defenseless. The deep longing of the defenseless. These ones, indeed any fool, is without defense, save in God himself. The one whom we've already identified is the one whom alone can bring to himself and make his own. There's a deep longing that sets in because of what God is doing. It's indicated particularly in the seventh verse. And they're no longer the defenseless, particularly as verse 6 indicates. They become the defended because of the safety that God is. But let's walk through this and make a few observations. There are actually three sub-points in Psalm 14, 4 through 7. In verse 4, we have the pity of God. In verses 5 and 6, we have the presumption of the foolish. And then in verse 7, we have the promise of the delivered. That is the objective hope that those who have been delivered unto safety possess for their own well-being to the glory of God. Let's look at each of these because they're very important. They're very edifying. Notice in verse 4, we see the pity or the compassion of God through what is in the English posited here as a, a divine interrogative. Will evildoers never learn those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord? In other words, he's seen them as those who don't seek him. Up in verses 2, 2b, and uh, that's developed more in verse 3. And then again in verse 4b, those who don't call on the Lord, that uh, applies to them as well. They devour my people. They're working on my people. In fact, they're swallowing them up as easily as they swallow bread on a daily basis. Will evildoers never learn? What he's really saying there in those words is, will these fools never get the fact that I care about my people? I'm concerned for them. If I care enough to save them and make them my own, why do they not see that I care enough to sustain them. You begin to see something of the motivation of God within His own character that leads Him to make fools His own. The pity of God. You know, you have no hope at all unless God has compassion on you, unless God in some way that we can't comprehend feels sorry for you. That's why Paul uses that language that we, above all, are greatly to be pitied in a certain context that I'm recalling. We are pitiable. And unless God comes to us in His compassion, there is no hope. Now, secondly, in the fifth and sixth verse, notice how it is revealed that there is a presumption on the part of the foolish. They're frustrating the plans of the poor. They are... Frustrating is a, is a complicated word. They are making complex the lives of those who are gods. And God reminds us that they are His righteous company. And in 6b, that they are indeed finding refuge in Him. But notice what verse 5a reveals. There they are overwhelmed with dread. One translation I read said, there They are there terribly terrified. You see, as God is doing His good work in saving and protecting and delivering ultimate good unto His people, 
These fools are not just undergoing no experiences at all. They are beginning to see that they have underestimated Israel's God. They've fallen short in their understanding of just how powerful this God they hate is. They're terribly terrified. That's hope for you and me. You know, there's people who hate us in this world and who oppose us. They are in the process throughout the providence of God and all His gracious works in His creation for His people of beginning to quake before this God and to realize, uh-oh, we've messed with the people of God and therefore we will have to be dealt with by Him. That ought to encourage you. It does me. But then there's the matter of the promise of the delivered. Oh, how refreshing verse 7 is. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We saw the term Zion back in Psalm 2, verse 6. This is the the holy hill of God, the, the place where He is representatively via the ark present with His people. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that this psalm was written at the time of the ark coming to Jerusalem, hence the utilization in 7a of the term Zion. But what's in view here is heaven, that for the people of God from heaven would come God's restoration of the fortunes of His people, or literally, restoration of captivity. And the captivity there has to do with how they are held captive in the the consequences of sin, the sins of fools, the sins of their own that accrue to their detriment spiritually, that do damage to their souls, that a time is coming when God from heaven will restore the fortunes of His people. That word restore really indicates what we've seen several times before in the Psalms thus far. The matter of Jesus, ultimately, as God works out His covenant promises, defeating His and our enemies and making them, per the promise of Psalm 110.1, to which Paul alludes in 1 Corinthians 15.25, making them His footstool until all of them have been trampled upon, until He's reigning, until He's making them all under His feet. That's the victory. Restoration of the fortunes entails just that thing. The treasures of God that are hidden in Christ. Those vast riches from all eternity past that God has been pleased to give to those whom He wants to make His own and does. Making things better on that day than they were even in the state of original righteousness in which Adam and Eve existed once, but they forfeited because the cry of their heart was, No God. And when that happens, when the Lord restores His people to their fortunes, then for Jacob there will be joy or rejoicing, and for Israel there will be gladness. These are basically one and the same in light of Genesis 32:28 that Jacob wrestled with God and with men and, and had overcome. His name was changed to Israel because of that. Jacob would simply here on the part of David be a reference to the individual, while Israel would take into account the corporate body of those whom God has made his own and those whom He is about the business of restoring all that He has for them unto them. 
You see, we have a happiness that is coming. We have a gladness that is coming. And it's coming from heaven. And it will be fully realized on that day when God assigns to all of those who have come to Him in faith believing every last blessing that He has stored up for them. You see what Psalm 14 verse 7 is really the Old Testament saints, Revelation 22:20. It's a come, Lord Jesus. When you begin to realize who you are, what your need is, just how greatly God has met that, and how it is that the sufferings of this life are merely the experiences through which you experience the application of what Christ has done for you. The application of that to your soul, recognizing that as He suffered to accomplish your salvation, you will come into the reception of that salvation by suffering also. And yet we have the hope that we will never suffer or endure anything the likes of what He did. We will never undergo the wrath of God because He did. We are freed from that. And there is nothing that any man can know here below that would be more dreadful than that. Doesn't that give you hope? Come, Lord Jesus. That's what's coming from the heart of the King here in an adumbrating way. Oh, that the salvation for God's people would come from heaven the restoration of the fortunes of His people so that men might rejoice and the body politic of God might forever be glad. I I see this in ministry as the years wear on. I see people who are getting older. Some of them are very old and they're in pain. And when you try to have a conversation with them, at some point they just say, the desire of my heart is come, Lord Jesus. And sometimes I speak with people in middle age who have been through three or four marriages and they are so depressed and they are so alone. And at some point, what they say ultimately is, come, Lord Jesus. Then there are those who are having financial difficulties and don't know how they're going to make it through the first year. They can be at any age. And if they're believers, you'll hear them say at some point, come, Lord Jesus. Can't we just be taken out of the mess? And Psalm 14 reminds you that this great God who has delivered the depraved is going to do just that. He's going to make all things new. And the mere prospect of that ought to make anything endurable. It ought to make anything that will go through something in which we can, by His grace, rise up and welcome. Because we know that one day, Yahweh will restore the treasures of His people. And that longing, that deep longing that you have as a delivered one will be fully realized and fulfilled. You see, pressing on toward the mark for the upward prize of God is a calling that is worth it. 
Jesus, by his work, has made it worth it. This life is worth the living because he lived life lawfully, died sacrificially, and lives again. Sometimes your friends say to you, hang in there. Psalm 14 says that same thing to you, only it has more power. Because we can only wish each other well and ask God to be kind to one another, but but the God who speaks through King David in Psalm 14, He can do something about our woes and our problems. And He has, and He will. May He build you up in that faith once and for all delivered to the saints by that glorious reality this day and every day. Amen.